Hello and welcome to Better Together podcast series brought to you by Microsoft and One Identity. I'm Charles Commons and in this episode we're exploring the most common Active Directory exploits, why they happen and what you can do to prevent them from happening. Joining me to discuss these are One Identity's Active Directory Management and Security Team Lead, Dan Conrad. Hello, Dan. Hello, Charles. And Brian Patton, a Principal Strategic Systems Consultant at Quest Software. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Hello. So Active Directory is one of the most valuable targets for cyber attackers because it handles authentication and authorization across all enterprise resources. Once AD has been compromised, the attacker can use it to escalate its privileges, significantly increasing the scope and damage of the attack. Let's begin this conversation on AD exploits then by speaking about one of my favorites, password spraying. So this is where attackers take a previously compromised password, possibly from an unrelated data breach, and attempt to match it with another username to gain access to a system. So Dan, why is this such a common exploit, first of all, and then what can be done to prevent it? Sure. So it's still common today because it works. We've seen, uh, you know, even in a lab scenario, if you stand up an Active Directory and um, set it out, you know, publicly facing on the internet, it'll be a matter of minutes before somebody will port scan against it, see that it's Active Directory, and try to uh, breach it with well-known passwords. These well-known passwords are, you know, large databases that have come from. There's one called the Rocky Breach, and there's several others that people use to scan against known usernames. This sort of scenario is pretty common. And, you know, you look at these large data breaches and people are using the same passwords, whether it's in their social media account or their corporate network. So if you compromise somebody's public password, you you may be able to get access to their bank. You may be able to get access to their social media, but you also may be able to get access to their corporate username and password to be able to do anything they need to do. And, you know, Active Directory is still a very appealing target because... At its core, Active Directory is a single sign-on solution that's designed for user convenience, where once you authenticate, you get access to really a lot of Active Directory, read permission to everything, and access to things where you've been assigned. So once you have that username and password compromised, you can really start to do things like um, reconnaissance against an Active Directory to figure out how to get to that next step of compromising things. And once you have compromised it you know, with, through this password exploit, Um, you can really go crazy with it. You can own the environment. You can deploy ransomware because it is this SSO solution. One of the controls you can put in place is multi-factor authentication. It's not only do you have to know something, your shared secret, i.e. a password, but now you have to have something, a device, a token, something else to verify your identity that you are who you are. So just by adding that multi-factor you are exponentially increasing your security posture immediately. And I'm still just astonished that many organizations have not you know, verified where uh, people have to do multi-factor authentication in their environment. So another thing that Brian and I have discussed is you know, the common protection from this years ago was to just set uh, lockout thresholds. So if somebody takes a user account and tries to a- attempt you know, three failed passwords, it'll basically lock up the account so that it can't be used. So we've seen the reverse of this from a password pr- spraying perspective. Instead of trying 10,000 passwords against an account 
you can try 10,000 accounts against a common password. And it kind of changes that whole dynamic. So you're not actually, the attacker wouldn't actually lock out accounts in this way, but they would be basically scanning across the environment to try to find an account that matches the password instead of the other way around. I'm surprised that when we talk about multi-factor authentication, that it isn't more prevalent across companies and organizations. I mean, I have exactly the same kind of thing for accessing my bank account online. I've got a token that I have to put my debit card into to create a a one-time code that will allow me entry along with the password and the username that's already set up. And I don't think twice about it. I'm quite happy, more than happy, to use that to gain access to my bank account. So it, it can be done and it is quite easy. Right. And I hope you've gotten to the point where you actually appreciate the multi-factor authentication. You know, of course, the value of your own bank account and what it would take to get into that. Or if something were to be compromised there, what would happen? So I think the general consumer, the regular corporate user will get to the point or has already gotten to the point where they don't mind the multi-factor and they can easily adapt to that type of authentication. Yeah, I think a lot of people that are managing these environments, they don't necessarily want to change. It's like, uh, Dan, he's much more elderly than I am. You know, he doesn't want to have to change what he's been doing stuff over the last 40 years that he's been doing business. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Thanks for that. <laughs> so let's move on very quickly then to the next one. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, so do forgive me. Local loop multicast name resolution. Uh, that sounds complicated, Brian. So can you just explain to me what it is, please? So basically, it's a way that uh, computers on a network can communicate with each other where they can't reach the DNS server. So it's like, okay, I'm like, hey, I need to communicate with Dan. But Charles, if you're like, hey, I'm Dan, well, I may start sending you my different passwords and hashes and stuff like that, and you take it. So really, this was uh, good when AD was first coming out and you know, DNS, you don't want to have to have a server in every single, you know, location out there. You had a poor connectivity, whatever. But the world's changed since then. Not only do you necessarily need to have something emulating as a DNS server locally on your network segment. No, it seems it does seem unnecessary, Brian. I mean, it's, that's one of those things where I think most people have just turned off that capability. But we do find scenarios where impersonation does work like that. So you know, you can have a server act as a, you know act as another server, and as soon as somebody can't find it readily, they'll broadcast for it, and then something will respond, and you get that response. It asks for credentials. Like, well, okay, here we go again. Multi-factor would protect that as well, right? Well, think about this, you know, with the start of COVID and everything, a lot of people started working from home. So if you didn't have a problem there where you're working from your you know, at-home office versus the work office, there is no reason you really can't go out there and disable LLM and R. You can do that via group policy for the domain-joined computer and ensure that it can't be used. People should not be using LLM and R in 2022. If something does, in fact, break, because that setting has been changed, well, you may want to you know, go out there and remediate it. And if an application is still requiring that, you probably want to get rid of that application anyway. So it's 2022 now. Come on, guys. Agree, agree. I mean, the, the idea of broadcasting on the network to figure out where resources are is not a good idea anywhere. So we, we used to get away with it on closed networks. So it wasn't such a big deal back then. 
sounds to me like it's just a case of update your thinking come into the modern world and and let's use something else rather than this and that will essentially solve that particular issue that we've got here yeah i think people don't know that they need to go out there and disable it so if you haven't disabled it yet you probably want to look into it it's not that hard and uh you know, deal with any outcries later. I mean, it's going to increase your security posture immediately if you can get that gotten rid of. I think I've got an easy one that I, even I could probably have a stab at getting right uh, for us next, guys. Default credentials. So this is where a piece of hardware, let's just say for argument, a printer is connected to the network and the out-of-the-box username and password for the printer aren't changed. So I'm going to take a wild stab in the dark, Dan, and say, change that out of the box password, and that'll at least start you in the right direction. That's that's a very basic concept, right? I mean, even if you change it to something that seems fairly simple, um, because, you know, honestly, a troubleshooting neighbors or family members network devices, I can usually figure out what the default credentials are simply by a quick Bing search and going back and finding uh, what those exact default credentials are. We've done it repeatedly, but uh, having those default credentials on a corporate network or an enterprise is, you know, 10x as dangerous as it would be on your home network. So we want to make sure that, you know, somebody not only can they not control the printer or the thermostat or the... um, What's the one, the, the temperature monitor in the fish tank that's connected to the network? Uh, we want to make sure not only are those credentials changed to a complex password, but um, they're also done things like vaulting those credentials so that we can cycle them and change them on a regular basis and that sort of thing. It's basic privilege access management. And you may not think that the thermometer on the fish tank connected to the network is a privileged device, but if somebody can compromise it, it can become that privileged device and provide a gateway to something else. Yeah, I was going to say, we've talked about before, haven't we, about how you can get it at one level and and that will just give you the entryway and then you can start sort of jumping and skipping up the privileges and then eventually you'll find yourself at the point if you're a bad actor of where you want to be and that will be the place where you'll then get access to the things that are valuable to you. So yeah, you're quite right. That fish tank thermometer might not sound like something that is that important, but it's what it leads to that is the thing that's worth thinking about. Right. And even the you going back to the password spraying, even if I compromise a standard user account that has no elevated permissions in the environment, this is an Active Directory account. And the simple compromising of that account allows me to do enumerations against other accounts and queries. And, you know, the steps go on and on. Once I figure that out, I can find any domain admin in the enterprise, and then I can know which accounts I want to attack after that. So all of these gateways need to be shut down. I'll be honest, it sounds scary. And why people don't, I I suppose in a way, it's a case of just saying, well, if we explain this to people, if we educate them on this, then people will feel the way that I do right now and, and start going, right, actually, okay, I will go and make sure that I've changed all of these default credentials and that I've, I've blocked out as many access points as I possibly can. Agreed. You know, we're not going to be the people ringing alarm bells, but we want to make sure that there's an awareness to this. You know, when you're looking at risks to your environment, it's about a level of risk acceptance because you can't eliminate every risk, especially when there's people involved. But we want to make sure that the risks are understood and we've dealt with those in the best way possible. So what about hard-coded credentials then, Brian? Can you explain these for me? 
Yeah, it's pretty similar to default credentials. Hard-coded credentials means there's an application, so we developed it, and they put credentials in there for a shared secret key, typically to perform whatever function it is that application is serving. So now it is not just people in your environment that have some way of communicating. There may be hard-coded credentials where somebody else knows what that password is because they put it in there to simplify their development. So if anybody else knows what that default hard-coded credential is, well, that can be extremely problematic as they'll have a quote-unquote backdoor to be able to do things in your environment. So if you have an application, there is a hard-coded credential. It may be common across multiple different applications, across multiple different customers. So by getting one, you can get to many which is really quite uh, scary. And and again, I'm presuming multi-factor authentication will help resolve that. Well, not so much this one, because this is the an application, right? So an application is not always do multi-factor. Multi-factor is when human beings are involved. So typically, hard-coded credentials are when it's a service or an application, something of that nature. So in the Microsoft ecosystem, if you can do it, We'd always recommend like a Microsoft added GMSA capabilities or putting something in a password safe where it's changing those different passwords all the time. Because given enough time, you can start cracking password hashes, which is why if it's being used for a service, those hashes need to change. Because there's no real way feasibly that you're going to be able to crack it if it is, in fact, a complex password. You know, any kind of service account or application really should have something I've heard like GMSA is 25 plus characters and it's constantly changed and managed by the different system itself. Right. Okay. So that's more a case of this is something that is there within your software and it's, it's there and you can't really do much in terms of creating the vulnerability yourself. The vulnerability is, is almost hardwired into it. Is that right? Well, that's, that's correct from a developer perspective. So if you had to write some code or a script or something like that to automate some processes in your environment, most of those processes will have a hard-coded credential and a password built into them. Um, and you know, honestly, that seems like there's no way around it. But today, most privilege access management solutions will, will handle that for you. So that's handled by inserting a, an authentication key into that script that allows that script to check out a credential from the PAM solution, inject it into the authentication stream. And then every time that's used, the password can be cycled. So if somebody were to target that, you know, no human would know what that password is at any given time. And um, if someone were to target it, it would simply be a moving target. And you know, by the time they um, reverse engineered a hash or something like that, it's long since gone. So moving on then, SMB relaying. So SMB stands for server message block and is a classic man-in-the-middle attack. Dan, I'll let you explain this one for me. It's classic. So it's, it's really just man-in-the-middle. So if you think about a client-server relationship where um, maybe you're accessing a file server or an application and it requires authentication or an SMB relay couldn't stand in the middle of that and not just receive the data going back and forth from you know the data that you receive, but the actual authentication stream. 
So instead of uh, your workstation, your laptop, whatever, sending the data to the server, the attacker would pick it up and just relay it to the server and being able to decrypt and read everything in between and vice versa. And, you know, if it's a, a Excel spreadsheet that's coming across that has you know, whatever normal data and it's not such a big deal. But then when you can relay that authentication stream anywhere that you need to after you've received it, recorded it, decrypted it, whatever, it becomes a real problem. So um, this is sort of a legacy attack that we used to see years ago when uh, the assumption was that somebody had already uh, intruded on your inside your perimeter. So when you had clients talking to servers inside your Active Directory environment, it was really something we watched for back a few years ago. Now that everybody's working from home, that's a different type of um, scenario. So the SMB attack is going to be much different in today's world than it would have been five, you know, even four or five years ago. Is it still something that we, we can potentially see working from home or has it evolved so much that it's almost unrecognizable from what we would know as being used beforehand? It wouldn't be the first thing someone would try. Right. Um, there's other ways that, you know, there's externally exposed Active Directory credentials that people would try. I mean, honestly, if if you don't have multi-factor authentication, um, you know, S, then I can probably reverse engineer a hash and take a, take a user's... Uh, credentials that way or listen another way. Um, but once you're inside the network, you know, I think a lot of organizations have enabled SMB signing, which requires those in, the traffic to be actually be encrypted and to be verified from the source and the sender. So that sort of nullifies, that can nullify a lot of what goes, goes on with the SMB relays. Yeah, you should not be running SMB version one. You know, you got to report, identify if that is the case and remediate that immediately. And make sure you're using the SMB signing that Dan was alluding to. Curb roasting. First of all, have I said that right? Yeah, curb roasting. It's a fun one. Yeah, I was going to say. So it's another common attack used by malicious actors uh, once access is gained to an organization's internal network and a domain account is compromised. So uh, you've already answered this question for me, which is, is it as fun as it sounds, Brian? Well, I don't know what you do on the weekend for fun, but... You know, I've tried to diversify my, uh, you know, skills and my interest. So it's not really that much fun, so to speak. Uh, but it is relatively easy in many different environments. You know, any user has the ability to request an account that has a service principal name to request to use that different service. So the fact of the matter is, if I can get a copy of that different hash because I'm requesting that service, I can start, you know, hacking away and eventually start cracking that different hash and figure out what its true secret is. So if you have any accounts that have a service principal name, they are subject to cover roasting. You need to make sure you have very complex password for those different accounts. Now, given the fact that given enough time, you can crack any different type of hash. This is where, you know, it is highly recommended if you have an account that has a service principal name that's subject to cover roasting, you probably want to configure it as a GMSA so that hash will automatically change on a regular interval. If it can't work with a GMSA, that's where there's password safe type technologies that you can use to kind of rotate that type of stuff as well to kind of put a mitigating control in place. Doing that, then cover roasting really isn't an issue if you put those right controls in place. 
And to clarify, uh, Brian's used the term GMSA. That's a group managed service account that you can use in Active Directory, which is a sort of a self-managing account that constantly cycles its own password. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. I was wondering. Um, so privilege elevation, that's something uh, in a day that we've talked about before on episode two. Um, rather than being at the beginning of an attack, it's something that happens once the attacker is already inside. And as the name suggests, it's when the attacker escalates the credentials they have access to, moving up the food chain to reach a juicier systems and data. Is prevention then all about robust monitoring and reducing the amount of identities that have such privileges, Dan? Uh, well, that's a good start. I mean, you know, looking back at Kerber roasting, you know, to run a Kerber roasting attack, you would have to have a privileged credential to do that. Um, and management of privileged credentials, you know, when you're in Active Directory, we're talking about default credentials, domain admin credentials, even the, the default administrator account in Active Directory. All of these need to be properly managed. It's just a matter of they are the privileged credentials. You know, we can actually control you know, a best practice is to limit the number of accounts that are privileged, you know, accounts, I'm not, I'm saying accounts, not people, because those accounts need to be closely monitored with a greater persistence than uh, a standard user that has no special privileges in the active directory. So constantly um, cycling passwords on privileged accounts, constantly controlling who has them, who has access to them. Um, I, you know, I think I was talking to Brian earlier today, as a matter of fact, and, uh, we were discussing the built-in administrator account. Brian, I mean, you, you deal with this all the time, don't you? Yeah, I had a, a customer not too long ago, and their built-in administrator account, for one, it had a service principal name. For two, the administrator account password hadn't changed since 2012. But that's an account that, if I got access to it, can take over the entire organization. So I think one of the first things most organizations need to do is they need to define a tier zero. If you're looking at Microsoft's enterprise access model, it is the control plane and figure out all the relationships of people or other different accounts that have access to control those different objects. And by doing that, putting the appropriate control safeguards, you know, we can more quickly, you know, make an impact. You know, AD can be secure if configured correctly. Unfortunately, when AD first came out, it was designed to operate with any different application out there. So most organizations, it is not configured correctly and you know, can easily be exploited. Right. And, and we do understand the, you know, the apprehension of what happens if I manage this account. Um, you know, in that scenario, if I change the password on this account, a lot of organizations aren't exactly sure what's going to happen or, or what applications are dependent on those oddball accounts. Yeah, most organizations are not in the business of security they're in the business of providing a service or making money. So there is a fear, and that does have a reason as to why people don't just make all these different changes. It's not that an organization doesn't want to make the change. It's they're scared that if they make a change, they're going to affect productivity. So it is good to have an out plan where, hey, if something does break, as we're trying to secure it, we can easily revert back to that previous state and then figure out what we need to do next. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, so lastly, we've got good old-fashioned social engineering. You would kind of maybe think that these types of attacks would be less common these days, but as organizations improve their awareness of the attacks that are happening, the attackers obviously then 
get better at disguising their true intentions. So apart from staying up to date with the latest methods that attackers are using, what else can we do to prevent these types of attacks, Brian? Well, first, it's education of the consumers. Consumers, you are our end users, are human beings. They like and crave attention on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever else it may be. And they divulge a lot of information. So more often than not, they're giving away information, which makes it more easy to social engineer them to begin with. For example, you're uh, posting on a website that, you know, you're about to close on your house and you're really excited about it. When an attacker may use that information to provide stress to you based on the situation you've already you know, shared about, and they may be able to extract the information they need at that point in time to get whatever they need from you. So it's constant education as to what's going to market. I don't think it's just a corporate education. Here's your security awareness training. I think us as individual humans need to talk more amongst each other about what we're seeing, communicate more frequently, so you realize, well, this could happen to me because it happened to my friend down the street or it happened to my neighbor. I mean, let's start talking about all the different you know, cons that people are doing to make it more relevant to me. I, th- I think that's very fair because if you think about if you were to be robbed, your house physically um, robbed, then you would probably tell your neighbor that that had happened because you would want them to make sure that they didn't have the same thing happen to them. And yet for some reason, when it comes to something like this, cyber, it's not quite the same thought process of, oh, I should maybe have that conversation with my neighbor or, you know, the neighboring company um, or any of your, your, your customers, for example. There's, there's always going to be that almost stigma of if this has happened to us. Yeah, maybe really the Nigerian prince didn't give me the money, even <laughs> yeah. though uh, I gave him my bank account. <laughs> yeah. yeah, share that information. And you know, Brian, one of the when we were teaming with a, a group that does red team attacks, and they tell us, you know, the easiest way to get access to something is to ask for it. And um, they, they said, in five years ago, that was effective eighty five percent of the time. So um, you you imagine hiring somebody to do a you know a red team investigation and try to engineer your network or get access to a network resource, and somebody just gave it to them. And it's like, it's an obvious problem. So I think education has come a long way. I, I would hope that that doesn't happen as easily today. And I, I do see um, sort of the mentality and the expectation accelerating to the point where people would look out for that sort of thing or be very questioning on anybody that asked for a credential today. Can I have your password, Dan? You already have it, Brian. You already have it. <laughs> So there we go. An explanation of some of the most common AD exploits. And thanks to Dan and Brian, you've got some great ways to help prevent them from happening in your organisation too. You've been listening to Better Together, a podcast series brought to you by Microsoft and One Identity. In the next episode, Dan and I will be speaking about the different One Identity and One Login product solutions that can be deployed for building a layered approach to manage and secure AD and Azure AD, as well as help get customers on the path to zero trust. Join us then.